Hello, and welcome to Tiny Insect, episode 1.9, Legalize It. Before we get started, I wanted to apologize for the lack of episodes in recent months. Let's just say that I had my share of 2020 suck. I also moved, which was great, but a ton, ton of work. But it's a new year now, and I hope to release episodes on something approaching a regular schedule. Last episode, we talked about how a global silver shortage in the first half of the 1800s, combined with an increasingly abundant supply of cheap Indian opium, combined to turn off the giant Chinese silver vacuum and throw it into reverse. Instead of bringing tons of silver into China every year, foreign ships began to carry it away in ever-increasing amounts. As a result, the price of silver grew dramatically and drove the relative value of everything else, especially the copper coins that were used in everyday transactions, down in a deflationary spiral that wrecked havoc on the Qing economy and the daily lives of China's people. The Daoguang Emperor, who had ascended to the throne in 1820, considered what he had to do to stem the flow of silver out of his empire. At the top of the list for Daoguang, and his leading scholar-administrators was preventing the purchase of foreign opium with silver. Opium is a drug derived from a milky fluid, or latex, of the poppy plant. This contains several active ingredients, most prominently morphine. Although not used as much today, you may have heard of heroin, which is also derived from the poppy plant, as well as its many synthetic opiate cousins. Opium was used in China as a medicine as early as the 8th century CE, when Muslim traders brought it overland from Central Asia. The poppy flowers were grown for their beauty and the shoots and seeds eaten as a delicacy. Poppy cultivation arrived in China shortly afterward, and by the 15th century, opium was a standard part of Chinese medicine. It was typically drunk or eaten to treat illness, coughs, or diarrhea. Although recreational use did exist, it was the exception rather than the rule. The tax authorities during the Ming Dynasty, for example, and the early Qing periods, thought of opium as a medicine and levied taxes on it as they did any other medicinal herb. The practice of smoking opium began with the arrival of tobacco from the Americas. Tobacco was first cultivated in the Americas and arrived in Asia less than 100 years after 1492. It wasn't long before it became widely grown throughout East Asia, Southeast Asia, and Indonesia. Tobacco smokers in East Asia mixed opium with their tobacco, which was far less intoxicating but much more sociable way of consuming the drug. By the 19th century, the practice of mixing opium and tobacco had actually fallen out of favor and opium was smoked all by itself. But without the introduction of tobacco from the Western Hemisphere, It's unlikely that opium would have become so popular in 19th century China since it had failed to catch on for the 800-odd years between its introduction and the arrival of tobacco. But opium's full transformation from a legitimate medicine into a recreational drug that threatened the social order took a long time to happen. The Yongzheng Emperor first issued a set of proclamations in 1729 banning opium's use, transportation, and sale throughout the empire a century and a half after tobacco's introduction. In Yongzheng's proclamation, 
The harshest punishments were reserved for the owners of opium dens, who could be put to death. I think it's interesting that the opium den proprietors, men and women who ran smoking establishments, but didn't necessarily sell the drug itself, were deemed the greatest enemy of public order. The Yongzheng Emperor prescribed punishment for opium smokers and for traders as well, but these were less severe than the punishment he deemed appropriate for people who facilitated smoking in a social context. Compare this to drug prohibition in the United States today, which is linked to physical possession of banned substances, and especially in quantities that suggest intent to distribute. It would be as if we punished the club owners where drugs were prevalent much more than the people who carried drugs into the country in their luggage. Yong Jung's proclamations seem to have been mostly symbolic, however, a statement of public morality and not a policy that was going to receive significant resources or attention and enforcement. Neither Yong Jung nor his son, the Qinglong Emperor, issued further proclamations related to opium. We don't know of a single instance where Yong Jung's proclamation led directly to a conviction and punishment. This recalls the efforts made by the previous Ming Dynasty to suppress the use of tobacco, which was also banned when it first arrived. Neither effort went anywhere. Indeed, by the early 19th century, smoking tobacco was a much bigger part of daily Chinese life than use of opium. In the 18th and early 19th century, opium became a favorite form of conspicuous consumption among Qing and Chinese elites. Smoking was surrounded by elaborate ritual, and they used ornate pipes and other smoking equipment, maybe a bit like a rich family today might keep a temperature-controlled wine cellar and pop a $500 bottle when their friends come to dinner. The use of opium was well known in the Qing court of the Jiangxi Emperor in the early decades of the 1800s. The drug was first used regularly by the emperor's palace eunuchs, guards, and other court officials. The Daoguang Emperor, Jia Qing's second son and future emperor during the Opium War, regularly smoked opium as a young man. Just a few years before he ascended to the throne, the future Daoguang Emperor wrote of the drug, quote, People in the past said that wine is endowed with all the virtues, but today I call smoke the satisfier. When you desire happiness, it gives you happiness, end quote. He also wrote poetry about how he used the drug to fight off boredom. Overall, this was all in keeping with the drug's high status during the first few decades of the 1800s. Opium was just too expensive to be used outside the halls of power, whether that was in Beijing or in the gardens of the wealthy throughout the empire. As the drug's use spread through the court in Beijing, the Jiaqing Emperor began to speak out against its use. We don't know if he was aware of his son's habit. First, the Jiaqing Emperor issued an edict, making it clear, crystal clear, that opium was still illegal despite a century of non-enforcement since his grandfather's edict. A few years later, he issued a separate ban on opium's importation into China. As with his predecessors, he didn't take any strong action to enforce these edicts. When the Daoguang Emperor came to power upon Jiang Qing's death in 1820, he took up the fight against the drug, of which he had written adoringly just a few years before. 
anecdotes of the drug's ill effects had trickled into the court and threatened Dao Guang's sense of order. One of the big problems was that many of the most talented up-and-coming scholars, those who would sit for the Jinshu exam in Beijing, were opium addicts. One year, many went into withdrawal during the exam and a few even died. It was one thing for a rich prince to use opium while he was waiting for his father to die. It was yet another for those who actually ran the empire, those who were supposed to be China's best and the future leaders of the Qing bureaucracy, to become hopeless drug addicts. Opium smoking threatened to become an impediment to the functioning of the empire itself. Or at least, that's how Daoguang saw it. Opium abuse, however, wasn't a widespread social problem beyond the elite circles of the Qing Empire during the 1820s and 1830s. While there were many, many unknowns about opium use in this period, we do have some basic facts. There just wasn't enough opium in China to support what we understand today as widespread substance abuse. Opium imports into the Qing Empire in 1939 broke records, but in an empire of more than 400 million is the equivalent of less than 7 grams per citizen. Use varied considerably, but ballpark, 7 grams was enough opium for a light user for a single day. There was domestic production and other smuggling overland, but even with the most generous assumptions, there simply wasn't enough opium to support any kind of regular, widespread use throughout the empire. It was only decades later, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, that the supply of opium approached the level that it could support a widespread use that comes close to modern stereotypes. That increase was driven more by increased domestic production than imports from the British Empire. Of course, this reality didn't stop Qing and British moral Puritans alike from declaring opium use a scourge. It just really wasn't true outside of, of the kind of narrow, elite social circles in which the proto-drug warriors walked in. Daoguang and the Qing officials weren't aware of the massive fall-off of silver mining in the Americas or change in monetary policy of the United States, both of which we discussed last episode. All they saw was the empire's silver being spent on foreign opium and sailing away on foreign ships. This, they posited, was the cause of the silver-driven deflationary spiral that they saw all around them. For the Qing elite, every chest of imported opium meant reduced silver stocks. Opium wasn't just bad for the moral health of the Chinese, it was devastating for the Qing economy and the stability of the dynasty itself. Just to avoid any confusion you might have, I want to go on a bit of a tangent for a moment and emphasize that the nature of the trade imbalance between the Qing and British empires in the early 19th century is completely different from trade deficits run by modern countries. When the United States runs a trade deficit with the People's Republic of China in 2021, a couple things can happen. One is that whomever ends up with the monetary surplus, quote-unquote private Chinese companies or the PRC state itself, they can lend that money right back to the American government, American companies, American consumers, or buy assets in America. Alternatively, they can spend their dollars somewhere else in the world, where many corporations and governments and central banks rely on having U.S. American dollars to conduct business 
or to save as currency reserves. The cost of moving money around the globe today is basically nothing, much different than the cost of shipping heavy metals long distances by sailed power boats in the early 19th century. Second, if for some reason the PRC wanted to prevent those dollars from flowing back to the United States in any quantity that would have a potentially deflationary effect, the U.S. government and the Federal Reserve could just print more money. There's no risk, zero, zilch, none, that the United States is going to run out of dollars, no matter how high its trade deficits become. This is a very, 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 very different situation than when your money supply is physical silver. You can't make more silver by typing it into a keyboard or printing it on special paper, but you can with dollars. All right, interlude over. Back to China in the 19th century. By 1830, opium was traded everywhere within China and easily found in just about every town and city. As we see in the trade of illicit drugs today, the opium trade was surrounded by violence and corruption as organizations dealing in opium protected their turf from government officials and other traders by force of arms. Smugglers moving balls of opium on their person were tempting targets for robbers who could themselves easily transport and sell the drug and whose victims were in no position to go to the authorities. Bribing officials and guards was just part of doing business for the traders of opium. The historian Stephen Plott notes how the more the Daoguang Emperor tried to suppress the opium trade, the more that trade undercut Qing authority. Quote, the drug kingpins showed themselves to be better providers for the locals in their area of operation than the distant central government was. They gave rural people employment, income, security, and by consequence of the opium syndicates were both more respected and more feared locally than the remote powers of the central state. End quote. This was especially true in Lingnan. That's, remember, the southern part of China where we're focusing most of our story right now. Faced with their opium and silver dilemma, some Qing officials proposed relaxing the ban on growing opium in China as a way to deal with the silver problem. They worried that cracking down too hard on opium dealers and users would provoke a violent backlash or even rebellion, and they were not confident in the Qing's naval ability to stop foreign smugglers. After all, by the 1830s, the Qing had not needed an ocean-going navy in more than a century, and basically didn't have one. So, these scholars reasoned, if the problem was that silver was being traded for foreign opium, why not just grow more opium at home? If China grew its own, then there would be no need to buy Indian opium with silver. This idea received support from many powerful officials. The governor-general of Guangdong province, Deng Tingzhen, who knew a thing or two about the opium trade and the power of European navies, was one such official. The scholar, Wu Lanxiu, also based in Guangzhou, put the argument like this, quote, To an individual, it may seem like opium is a major problem, while silver is a small one. But from the perspective of the empire as a whole, it is opium that is minor. Silver is the major problem. End quote. Governor General Deng sent Wu's writings to Beijing for consideration. A court official there found them sensible and put them in a memorandum prepared for the Daoguang Emperor himself, in which it was recommended that opium be legalized and taxed as a medicine again, 
as it had been before it was outlawed. The emperor reacted positively to this proposal and asked for it to receive full, open hearing between all the officials based in Guangzhou. In 1836, the Guangzhou-based scholars replied with unequivocal support for the legalization policy. The Guangzhou-based officials recommended to Dao Guang that opium be traded directly for tea and taxed lightly. If this was done, they said, the outflow of silver would cease. Officials, like Governor General Deng, probably recognized how the legalization would help them combat corruption among their own ranks. Though, of course, they could never really admit this weakness in their correspondence to Beijing. Just to give you an idea of what Governor Deng was dealing with, one well-documented smuggler in the Guangzhou area who was operating at the time was named Wang Zhengguao. After receiving the equivalent of a dishonorable discharge from the army, Wang landed a job running a coastal patrol near Guangzhou. He took large bribes for allowing opium to pass his post. Other shipments he seized and resold, pocketed some of the proceeds, and then claimed to his superiors that he'd seized illicit silver from smugglers. For this, he received a promotion. Wang's story may be a bit extreme, but it wasn't wholly atypical. The opium trade exacerbated the corruption that was already eroding away the foundations of the Qing state. Remember, we looked at a lot of that corruption that was already well established in the 1790s. With the push for legalization back in Dao Guang's lap for a final decision, it stalled. Remember, Dao Guang is the guy who, as a young prince, smoked opium and wrote poetry about just how awesome it was. He didn't have some puritanical hatred for opium. But at this critical juncture, he showed himself to be a mediocre leader who lacked several qualities that were especially important during uncertain times. He was indecisive and doesn't seem to have had much of a strategic mind or the ability to think long term. Daoguang acted on impulse and was overly swayed by the last person in the room with him. So, though he was open to the idea proposed by the ministers in Guangzhou and expressed support one day, some other high-ranking court officials in Beijing were opposed to the plan and had voiced their objections. Instead of making a decision one way or the other, he just let the issue of legalization hang and never made up his mind. While Daogong waffled on the legalization proposal, he ordered Governor General Deng in Guangzhou to crack down even harder on the Chinese opium buyers and smugglers in Lingnan. To the chagrin of British and American opium dealers, Deng followed his orders with gusto. Chinese dealers were arrested, their ships seized, and the market for opium in Guangzhou began to dry up. For the British and American traders, the timing couldn't have been worse. The end of the East India Company's monopoly, which we'll talk about more in a few episodes, led to a flood of foreign ships arriving in Guangzhou, loaded with chests and chests of opium. They'd heard the rumors going around the city that the government was considering legalization and hoped to trade opium directly for silk and tea. The increased supply combined with fewer Chinese buyers still in operation, sent wholesale prices plummeting. Many European merchants lost their shirts, and several large trading firms went belly up. By 1838, the tide had turned decisively against opium legalization in Beijing. A conservative senior court official proposed that instead of legalizing the opium trade and accepting it, 
they should instead extend the crackdown to the common opium smoker himself, not just the dealers. He proposed that the opium users across the empire be given one year to quit their disgusting habit. After that, smoking would become punishable by death. With the year's warning, it would only be fair. He also asserted that the increasing problem with opium was part of a foreign plot by the light-haired British. To support his case, he pointed to their recent conquests in Java, which, he said, were preceded by flooding the island with opium. Daoguang sent his proposal to the 29 most senior officials in the empire and requested their feedback. Most of them opposed the death penalty for users, even with a year's warning. But in the face of such a strict proposal, none publicly favored legalization. The winds had shifted. The consensus was that the dynasty should crack down harder on domestic dealers and smugglers to stop the flood of opium and the outflow of silver. In the 1820s, China was at the beginning of a monetary crisis that was to push the Qing Empire down a silver-denominated death spiral. With nearly 200 years of historical hindsight and a global perspective, it appears that opium played an important and proximate but ultimately secondary role in the crisis. We talked about that last episode. We know silver production worldwide crashed in the early 1800s. We also know that the United States changed their laws in the 1830s, and that altered global trade patterns. But the Qing elite scholars didn't know that. They saw ever-increasing amounts of opium flooding into their empire in exchange for silver. They saw their exam students and fellow scholars abusing opium to the point where they were dying from withdrawal during the Jinchur exam. Like a 1980s drug warrior, they drew a direct connection between opium and the economic and social decline they thought they saw around them. And that's where we're going to leave the Daoguang Emperor and his court officials for now. Next episode, we're going to learn more about just what the barbarian drug dealers who were helping to tip the largest economy on earth into an economic depression were up to. Of course, I'm talking about the British. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review. Ratings and reviews help other listeners find the show. If you have feedback for the show, questions, or comments, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TinyInsectPod.